Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I want to give special thanks to Audible.com for supporting today's show. To get a free audiobook of your choice, including This Is How You Lose Her by today's guest, Juno Diaz, just go to audible.com forward slash big think. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. Each week, our producers dig deep into Big Think's archives to find ideas that are innovative, timely, or timelessly thought-provoking, and the quips are a total surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I am very, very happy to be joined by Juno Diaz. He's a fiction writer, author of the critically acclaimed and thoroughly enjoyable books, The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, and This Is How You Lose Her, a New York Times bestseller and National Book Award finalist. Welcome to Think Again, Juno. Oh, thank you for having me. Comic books and graphic novels and stuff, which I know you love and enjoy, and I have done uh, as well. And the ones I was reading as a child were Watchmen and uh, V for Vendetta and those, those kinds of things, Marvel, Man, and Concrete. And I remember a lot of conversation back then about how comics were going to be recognized as literature at some point and how that should be happening soon and they should be admitted into the quote-unquote canon. And it seems to me like that sort of never happened. I mean, we had Art Spiegelman's Mouse. We have all kinds of amazing comic books, right? But it seems like they still maintain a kind of fringe position. What's your perspective on that? God, I think, you know, comic writers... And comic critics probably could speak more clearly to this, but certainly from the perspective of someone who loves comics and who's been in it, you know, most of my life as a consumer, you know, as a fan, uh, the way comic books are being used is that they're more or less storyboards for Hollywood, certain kinds of comics. So on the one hand, comics have vaulted to the center of the conversation when it comes to big, stupid tentpole movies. But as far as the kind of the higher echelons of literary acclaim, no way, man. I think that that has still been a highly patrolled border. You know, comics have moved way more into the mainstream than they ever have. It ain't simply the pursuit of the basement dweller anymore. Far more generalized. A lot more women, women of color, are reading comic books than they ever have. I I still think that this is a, a society that grants them market share but doesn't grant them respectability. What would have to happen for all that to change, you know? We have our hierarchies. Human beings are insanely hierarchical. And there's going to always be this way of organizing privilege of saying who gets in and who gets out. And I think that as human beings, we're going to have to reform ourselves in the process of reforming our society. Because we seem to be the kind of people who we meet two people and we immediately think one person is over this person in this way. 
we're hierarchical, it seems like, almost reflexively. And that doesn't help us. Hopefully, a little bit at a time, the institutional apparatuses, which keep comics down, which look askance at comics, which don't reward comics the same way, which don't consider comics creators on the same level as a novelist, hopefully we'll begin to erode some of those biases, you know, just through our sheer efforts. But uh, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. Yeah, it reminds me, I mean, I've never read widely in philosophy, but the only philosopher I got deep into was Foucault, and, like, that was his whole thing. You know how power, you just knock it down somewhere, it just metastasizes and, like, redistributes. Oh, no, it is. The regenerative capabilities are incredible. Okay, so to reiterate the way the show works, our producers have chosen short interview clips for us to listen to. They could be on any subject, and they're a surprise to me, too. Are we ready? Ready to roll. All right. This is called America is Ready for a Gay President, and it's Jimmy Carter. Well, I think the entire population of America has come tremendous strides forward in dealing with the issue of uh, gays. And uh, I would say that um, the answer is yes. I don't know about next election, but I think in the near future, because step by step, Uh, we have realized that this uh, issue of uh, homosexuality has the same adverse and progressive elements as when we dealt with the race issue 50 years ago or 40 years ago. So I would say that the country is getting acclimated to a president who might be female, who might obviously now be black, and who might be uh, as well a gay person. Yes, I would say the answer is yes. Jimmy Carter, man, that was my first real president, you know, when I immigrated, man. I got Ford just for a little bit, then I got Jimmy. Uh, So it brings up a lot of memories. But look, what we've discovered is that, yes, you can get a black president in office, but that doesn't alter the awful fate of the community which he is a representative of. So it's not as if the black community is in a better shape because Obama was elected. In fact, I think it's been on the same downward path for the last 30 years. And I do think that we often have a heroic imaginary, that we imagine that if this one tribune from this group is elected, then that will mean that the entire group gets uplifted. Well, there is a benefit of having a black president. I think that it opens up the possibility in a lot of African-Americans and people of African descent is inspirational on some levels. But ultimately, I think that the United States is ready for a gay president. Okay, maybe, but it sure ain't ready to enfranchise gay people the way they need to be enfranchised. And in some ways, I think these are containment strategies, you know. So many people continue to say, well, we elected a black president, so that means that racism in the United States has dropped. Um, No, not at all. I want to talk about this because the situation for the black community in America obviously sucks in a lot of ways, and I'm not even really qualified to comment, but we are having this conversation this year, finally. A lot of people have been shot by police for a lot of years, and now there's a lot, lot, lot of talk about it. ta Coates' book came out. That was something, you know? I don't know if you, you're a busy man. I don't know if you had a chance to read of that course. book. No, but I mean, I think that there's been an enormous amount of activism around it that came out of the conflicted communities. You know, I mean, shit, black and Latino has been dying at this, as you just pointed out, forever. So my thing isn't that we're permanently stuck in these situations. 
I can recognize what a revolutionary moment the election of Barack Hussein Obama was and simultaneously say the black community has still got a massive police boot on its neck. It still has a white supremacist economic social containment field around it. And having these two strands together simultaneously is what matters to me. Marginalization also creates community in a way. Of course. I grew up in a white upper middle class suburb outside of D.C. There was no community where I grew up. Not really. I mean, the mall was kind of the community where I grew up. Well, people don't see their communities. It's often hard to be in air and recognize air. Yes, it's probably not as strong as communities one would want, but one should not be too romantic because, you know, when I go to colleges and these group of kids who themselves individually would not say that they have a a culture, and yet at the college, the white kid culture is like a very omnipresent default. Boys will be like, shoot, is there a male culture? I don't know if there's a male culture. And yet this patriarchal masculine culture is a default. And the people who are outside of it are like, yo, there is really a culture. (laughs) And I think that's, I think, the hardest thing for us is that often it's only from the people who are left out that they can tell us where the culture begins and where the culture ends. As a boy, I don't think we're as aware of our patriarchal culture until women are like, yo, it's here. And that's why we need these conversations and why we need these struggles, because it's only in these kind of conversations and struggles where we all appear where our boundaries appear, and where these boundaries get contested. I grew up in a poor, urban-like community of color, and yeah, we had some intense strains of community, but also we had so many problems that made community impossible. There's a lot of stuff that we're still trying to wrestle with in this country. You know, things that you think that are fixes turn out to be not so great in the long run. Things that you thought were like defeats turn out to be victories. And I think the point of it is that these are things we just have to keep elaborating and keep working on. All right. Shall we move on to the next? All right. Let's see what's next. This one is psychologist Dan Ariely talking about dishonesty. One of the mainstreams of my research for the last more than 10 years has been focusing on dishonesty. We grew up in a social environment and our parents tried to teach us what is acceptable and not acceptable. And in that environment, white lies are certainly acceptable, encouraged, and our parents teach us. There is a lot of things that we teach kids about how to be polite. And being polite often means not saying the exact truth. So this is white lies, right? And white lies are not about our benefit, it's about the benefit of others. Then, of course, there are the lies that have our benefit as well. Probably everybody who's ever late in New York blames the subway for some reason, right? They don't say, oh, you know, I, I know we had a meeting. I was just, I couldn't care really about getting here on time. I don't, I don't care so much about you waiting for me, so I left late. You don't say that, right? You say, I left on time. It's just a subway. You wouldn't believe what happened. But the interesting thing is that we learn to line this social realm, and then when we move to the business world, all of a sudden we're not supposed to lie. But can we make this transition? As far as dishonesty goes, we're kind of blinded to the forces that cause us to be dishonest. You know, we look at other people and say, oh my goodness, these are awful people. I'm really good. But we don't really understand how pressures work on us and how likely we could be to just go down, take one wrong step and then go down the slippery slope, just like lots of other people. 
So that was fantastic. I mean, I'm I'm a fiction writer. I live inside of people's capacity towards self-deception, and I just I'm endlessly fascinated by people who have an enormous capacity to deceive, or people who deceive themselves, or people who have a specific capacity to deceive themselves on one thing. I like love that. I just I can't get enough of that. Friends of mine who are utterly some of the most sober-minded people that you could entrust the fate of a nation in their hands because of the way that that kind of mental, ethical sobriety lives inside of them, the probity which, which they represent. But when it comes to their son, are incapable of seeing honestly what in the world is going on. And I myself particularly am really fascinated by that. Do you think that everyone is in the same boat? He seems to suggest that this self-deception is pretty much inescapable, or that lying is inescapable for pretty much everybody. I do think it's clearly a spectrum, and I do think it's part of our social lives. You know, it's part of the strategy of being a being, and that it takes an enormous amount of discipline not to. And yet, shoot, there's people that have disciplined their lives around other equally difficult things like not having sex, a central human process. So I just think like, hey, I believe that there's people who don't lie that much and have reduced it down to a very small scale. Most of us are in the spectrum in other ways. We're not like completely compulsive liars and we're not, from my experience, and we're not the people who don't ever lie. I think we're all caught in this. I grew up in a family where deception was a baseline. It was like a family tradition. The parents deceiving the kids all the time. Yeah. The amount of deception that occurred in my family was epic. You know, it was that generation of Dominican immigrants where, you know, they didn't even tell us we were immigrating to the United States. They were just like, oh, we're going to go down the street, and the next thing you know, you're on a plane. Right. You don't even get a chance to say goodbye to your grandparents. That was not an uncommon deception. A lot of Dominican kids I know and other kids were never told the truth. They just were brought to the airport. Right. And so, you know, some of us live the consequences, but I'm, I'm super interested in that because I've always prided myself in having low levels of self-deception. And so I thrill every time I catch myself doing it. This is why it is very, very difficult to figure out how to be a good person. And this is why a lot of people allow themselves sort of off the hook or let themselves off the hook, I guess, and say oh, it's a slippery slope, nobody is perfectly moral, we all kind of lie to ourselves, and therefore, uh, you know. Well, and what about, well, what about double lives? There's something about the way so many of us are split from ourselves. And I think about it, I mean, so many of our stories are dependent on double lives. As Aureli is pointing out, the culture encourages all sorts of white lies. Well, a culture also encourages all sorts of doubling inside our lives. To have a public face and a private face, to have a work life and a home life, then to have a sexual life, which isn't supposed to be present in this. By the time you get done with all this, the thing that you have the biggest muscle for is our living double lives. And how often we discover people in power who have double lives, people in authority who have double lives, We're always shocked when one of our neighbors or one of our friends is revealed to have a double life. Well, that's who we are. We're encouraged. And often double lives require an enormous amount of deception. I mean, look, I lived a double life for so long because, you know, I used to be an old slut. You know, I would be seeing this girl behind the back of the girl that I was actually really supposed to be seeing. 
And not only is it exhausting and damaging and all that kind of stuff, but it also was easy. And I don't mean easy because it was just easy for me. It's that what I discovered when I was doing it, why it was possible is because we live in a society that encourages it. In other words, like all our sort of superhero narratives where people by day are, yes, by day, I'm just a kind of debauched playboy. I'm a kind of just ne'er-do-well, and by night I'm Batman. The reason this makes sense of us is because it speaks to what we know about ourselves. That certainly most of us don't got superpowers and are not running around at night, but for the most part, most of us are two or three or four people at once. And we understand that. Now, the way that this functions is that this is a practice that requires a whole lot of lying to hold together. I think the fear and sort of thrill that those things provoke in us in some way taps into our own, you know, all of the fears that most of us live with, you know, because of those double lives. Who doesn't remember, at least my generation, doesn't remember Henry Hill at the end of Goodfellas. Henry Hill is no longer living this insane Batman-like life, you know, where he's out committing all these crazy crimes and that he's now he has been reduced to a more unified self. And he's like, I'm a schmuck. I'm a nobody. And yeah, man, there's there's something to that. I think that you living these crazy double lives is like a drug. It's hard then to get back into the life of a square. And our design is fascinating. Our design is fascinating. From an artist, it's endlessly productive. I mean, listen, the entire genre of mystery, crime, procedural, thriller would disappear without that just mechanism of people's double lives. Yeah, you're making me think of people who are bipolar and then get medicated out of it and are like, I miss the highs and the, you know, I miss the cycle. It's tough. Yeah. So um, I think we're ready to move on to the next one. Yeah, let's see Mm -hmm. what we have next. All right. This is called, it's Sylvia Earle, an oceanographer, and it's called A Fabric of Knowledge to Save Our Seas. Okay. I'm an optimist, despite many reasons for being concerned. One reason that I have for being an optimist is that we have means of communication now that didn't exist, even 10 years ago. I look at the phenomenon called Google Earth and how the Googlers have stepped up and not only used this wonderful format, Google Earth, to inform people about what's happening on the land, but now to fill out the ocean. There's now an ocean in Google Earth with hope spots embedded in it. So anyone, any little kid, any grown-up, any CEO, any teacher, any fisherman, anybody can hold the world in their hands and see what's happening with the information that is embedded within Google Ocean. This, to me, is the greatest reason for hope, that we're developing this fabric of knowledge with people who, once they know, may be inspired to care. It's the only thing that will cause people to care, knowing. And with knowing, the caring that comes, there is cause for hope that we'll find an enduring place for ourselves within the natural world, the natural systems, mostly blue, that keep us alive. I want to take another moment to thank Audible.com for supporting Think Again. Like podcasts, I've found that audiobooks are great when you're in a crowded subway with nowhere to sit and not even room enough to open up a physical book. And there's something remarkable about having a book read to you, something that, for me anyway, activates my earliest good memories of reading. 
I particularly enjoy hearing books read by their authors. One recent favorite from Audible was The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao by today's guest, Juno Diaz, a dazzling, funny, powerfully written book about a Dominican-American nerd growing up in Patterson, New Jersey. To download this or any other audiobook of your choice, go to audible.com forward slash big thing. I've come from an island. I'm from the Dominican Republic, man. You want to come talk about some poisoned waters, just come take a walk around the coastline of Santo Domingo, the biggest city. Shocking, the level of damage, the level of pollution. It is actually shocking. For me, I'm even more optimistic about just the basic fact that many of these geocynics have pointed out is that the world doesn't really need us. Even if we wipe ourselves out, life will regenerate itself in the long term, perhaps in a much more interesting and diverse ways. And there's a part of me that thinks even if we blow it and can't reboot this one, I think that the future of the world is still bright. (laughs) Not our future, you know. I guess that's where my skepticism of techno-optimism comes in, is that, like, it just seems like narcissism. It's just, like, we're excited about the stuff that we made, you know, like... Yeah, no. And it's just the fact, look, I understand with her her ideas, I mean, I, I think I understand what she's coming from, because shifts in communication technologies have often embedded social movements. And certainly, interconnectedness has been used very efficiently to enslave us. Well, one must maintain the hope of the possibility that we could reverse that and use it for our liberation. Whether that's actually true, I don't really know. But one thing I can definitely guarantee is that interconnectivity has been a boon to corporate powers. It's been a boon to repressive states. The court is still out whether it's been equally as good for democracy and justice. Certainly, it helped Black Lives Matter. I like that tension. I like those arguments, you know. And I, again, I'm particularly resistant and suspicious of this sort of techno-optimism. I just, I'm not really a big fan. But, uh, you know, I I, want to try to give space for that as a possibility. With the C's, I think that the why that is uniquely pressing is because this is where all of our effluvia is ending up. Nothing is more telling of the civilization that we have wrought than what we've done to the seas. And nothing breaks your heart and makes your cynicism harden, quite like spending some time on the ocean and seeing the colossal damage we've inflicted. And I think all of these things come together in this blue marvel that we call our oceans in ways that are tough for many of us to to deal with. I think sometimes when I take a walk on the Malecón in Santo Domingo and I see what's happened, there are days where I just want to do a goddamn backflip in anger and rage and disappointment and despair. This is our great, great inheritance. And man, we've really taken a nice dump on it. I guess what I want to ask, kind of going back to something you said earlier about how people deceive themselves and how interesting that is. At the same time, both in your writing and in talking to you, it's obvious that you have a very strong moral sense and causes that you believe in and, you know, justices that you want to be fighting for one way or the other. Are those incompatible things, like wanting things to be better and at the same time being fascinated by how fucked up they are? (laughs) No, no, no. I think it depends on if you fall for that American 
conceptualization of what optimism is. You know, in the United States, people believe that an optimist is someone who doesn't notice that anything's wrong. And that if you point out that there's a crack in a glass, you're not an optimist. You're not keeping it positive. (laughs) That's optimism. (laughs) Optimism is that you disfigure your vision as a way to exclude anything that would be remotely critical. Well, I don't buy that. My sense of what an optimist is, is a person who can notice the cracks in the glass and says, we can fix this. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't think I'm any different than a lot of people who've thought about these things. I just, I'm old, man. I'm in my, about to turn 50. And what I'm discovering more and more is that the world is a lot more complicated than I ever imagined. It requires a lot more compassion than I ever thought. And that I'm as much at fault as anyone that I would like to point my finger towards. And that it's proven very difficult for me to change the things that I need to change. And yet I still burn with an enormous optimism because I've seen how the kind of work that I've done has changed me a little bit. And that little bit in that little inch, I've, you know, I can see new worlds. I can see the possibility, utopian possibilities. And that that's greatly reassuring, you know, that's greatly reassuring. Juno Diaz, it's been a pleasure thank and you. a privilege talking to you. No, um, it's been great. Yeah, thank you so much for being on Think Again. Yeah, thank you. And that is it for this week's episode of Think Again. If you're liking what you're hearing, we need your help. Please rate or review the show on iTunes so we can keep bringing you these great conversations. Next week, I'm joined by Turkish novelist Orhan Pamuk, a Nobel laureate and the author of A Strangeness in My Mind. It's an amazing dialogue. See you then.